In this episode, we'll discuss the big idea of home-centered education. I'll answer questions like why public schools were created, why the U.S. shut down orphanages, and why education needs to be centered around the home. And at the end, I'll offer some simple strategies you can begin applying today, no matter where your children attend school. You're listening to Simple Wonders, the podcast for parents who want to raise happy, curious, lifelong learners. Hi, I'm your host, Jessica Smith, certified family life educator and mama of three. Join me as we explore simple tools to nurture your child's heart and mind. Have you ever wondered why orphanages or other institutions like that don't exist in the United States anymore? Well, up until 150 years ago, orphaned and abandoned children in the United States were sent to institutions to live out their childhood. Some were adopted, but many were not. They were given food and shelter and lots of socialization with peers, but many failed to thrive emotionally, socially, spiritually, and psychologically. Charles Loring Brace, a very religious man that was involved in humanitarian work for children, noticed that children being raised in these institutions were growing up without a conscience, moral training, only to become a strain on society as adults. Nothing like our beloved Anne of Green Gables. Well, being a very religious man, he believed that what these children were missing was a family, specifically parents, where they could learn morals and develop character. He began the difficult mission of finding homes for these children, and the Children's Aid Society was born. As a result, over 100,000 children were placed in homes and families where the majority of children thrived. The Children's Aid Society eventually became the foster care system that we know today. It's far from perfect. I'm sure we have all heard stories of its imperfection, but it's still better for children's development than institutionalized care. What most developed countries have learned from the era of orphanages and institutions for children is that they don't provide an environment where children learn to love and be loved, respect authority, or learn healthy social skills. I love how psychologist and author Dr. Gordon Neufeld explains this phenomenon in his book, Hold On to Your Kids. He said, If socialization with peers leads to getting along and becoming responsible members of society, the more time a child spent with her peers, the better the relating would tend to be. In actual fact, the more children spend time with one another, the less likely they are to get along and the less likely they are to fit in civilized society. If we take the socialization assumption to the extreme, to orphanage children, street children, children involved in gangs, the flaw in thinking becomes obvious. If socializing were the key to socialization, gang members and street kids would be model citizens. From history, we now understand that institutions and peers are not the ideal environment to learn the most important lessons and skills in life. The home and family has been and still is the answer for society's problems. To be a parent is to be a teacher. From birth, you have been teaching your children the most important skills they need for life and to succeed academically. The role of a mother and teacher requires the same skills to build up children's hearts and minds. But many parenting resources today focus mainly on behavior and psychology, and although these are very important, they rarely instruct parents on how to be teachers. Your children do not belong to society, the government, or even you. They are God's children, and he has given you stewardship over them. 
a responsibility to teach them what he wants them to know and train them up in habits that he wants them to develop. You are responsible to know who is teaching your children, how they are being taught, and what they are being taught. Ultimately, you will be held accountable before God for who you allowed to teach your children and who and what they were or were not taught. There is a reason Heavenly Father did not send children down individually to live and learn in institutions. He established the family unit for a reason. One of those reasons is that a family structure meets a child's most basic needs. Children thrive socially, emotionally, and psychologically when they are engaged in real meaningful work, when they socialize with mixed-age peers, and spend ample time with loving adults. Schools are a great resource for the family, but they were never meant to replace it. In December 2018, the previous year's Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA, test results were released. It tests 15-year-old students in 65 countries in the subjects of science, reading, and math. Alarmingly, American students came in 13th in reading and 36th in math, far behind China, Singapore, Finland, and Korea. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Arne Duncan, said, We have to see this as a wake-up call. And Tom Loveless, an education expert who was formerly at the Brookings Institution, said, What surprises me is how stable U.S. performance is. The scores have always been mediocre. Despite many attempts to raise them up, U.S. test scores have hardly changed since the PISA began being administered in the 90s. A group of PISA researchers wanted to dig deeper into how parents affect their children's academic success, especially PISA scores. So they sent out questionnaires to parents with a variety of questions, including how much time they spent with their children, time spent volunteering at school, time spent reading to their children, etc., The hypothesis was that parents who spent more time involved in their child's school, the higher the PISA test score. After analyzing the data multiple times, they were dumbfounded. The only consistent variable between all the successful countries, even down to individual test scores, was that parents of children who scored well on the PISA PISA test spent less time volunteering at their child's school. The researchers were confused. Wouldn't a child do better if their parents were more involved in their school? They ran their analysis again, but came back with the same results. After digging deeper into how these parents spent their time, they concluded that when parents do not volunteer at their child's school, they are spending that time one-on-one with their child instead. That one-on-one time is more powerful than managing fundraisers and splitting time between other children in the classroom. In her book, The Smartest Kids in the World, Amanda Ripley called this the coach versus cheerleader mentality. In general, parents of teens who did well on the PISA viewed their role as a coach and teachers as cheerleaders. They spent more time tutoring, reading, and discussing books with their child. Alternatively, teens who did not do as well on the test had parents who viewed their role as the cheerleader and the teacher as the coach. They spent more time supporting the school and, consequently, had less time to spend one-on-one with their child. At the end of her book, Amanda Ripley leaves her readers with this powerful observation. She said, Around the world, parents have dramatic influence on how their children learn. 
but parent-teacher association meetings are not where that learning happens. The research shows that parents who are most active in their children's schools do not tend to raise smarter children. The real impact happens mostly at home. L. Tom Perry affirms this truth as well in a powerful general conference talk entitled Mother's Teaching in the Home. He reminisces about his own childhood by saying, My mother understood the value of teaching her children about standards, values, and doctrine while they were young. While she was grateful to others who taught her children outside the home, either at school or church, she recognized that parents are entrusted with the education of their children and, ultimately, parents must ensure that their children are being taught what their Heavenly Father would have them learn. Like Amanda Ripley, Paul Tuff was a journalist who wanted to understand what makes children succeed in school and in life. The answer to this question led him to write the book, How Children Succeed. And like Ripley, he found the secret lies in the family. One man he interviewed, Steve Gates, works on helping youth in the Roseland District outside of Chicago. The neighborhoods and schools struggle with violence, low high school graduation rate, gangs, and drugs. Steve Gates grew up there and is keenly aware of the issues that families, teens, and schools face. While Gates is careful to not blame Roseland's parents for the neighborhood's crisis, he has decided that for him, at least, the most effective vehicle for improving children's outcomes is not the school or the church or even the job center. It is the family. In the past, home-centered learning was not possible or practical for most families. Both parents usually worked long hours on the family farm or in factories. They didn't have the knowledge or materials to educate their children. But today is very different. Technology and libraries have made it easier to provide a high-quality education by allowing us access to almost any book in the world, not to mention the greatest music and art, all for free right in our homes. Mothers are more educated and better prepared to teach their children than ever before. Innovation has freed women from time-consuming, labor-intensive housework that was required just for the basic needs, like making food, cleaning the house, and making and washing clothes by hand. All of this makes it possible for us to spend time nurturing our children's minds and spirits. The difficulty now lies in resisting the temptation to use all that extra time for less edifying pursuits. Charlotte Mason said this to parents of her time. Fathers and mothers, this is your work and only you can do it. It rests with you, parents of young children, to be the saviors of society unto a thousand generations. Nothing else matters. The avocations about which people weary themselves are as foolish as child's play compared with this one serious business of bringing up our children in advance of ourselves. It was difficult then for parents to prioritize their time. Imagine how much more difficult it is for parents now with so many more activities and pursuits competing for our attention. But, Miss Mason continues, the education of the children will always remain the holiest and highest of our family duties. The welfare, civilization, and culture of a people depend essentially upon the degree of success to attend the education in the house. The family principle is the point at which both religious and educational life of people centers and about which it revolves. 
It is a force in comparison with which every sovereign's command appears powerless. In other words, we cannot expect schools and governments to solve issues that start in the home. Parents are the only ones powerful enough for good or evil to make those changes. As I've studied family systems, child development, and education for the past 12 years, I've noticed an interesting pattern. Happiness, success, and a strong moral character all start in the home. It all comes down to parenting, unconditional love, discipline, and inspiring ideas. There are so many theories as to why the public school system is failing our children, but I think the biggest reason is that we just expect way too much of the system and not enough from the family. We expect the schools to develop character in our children, teach them life skills, and lay a broad foundation of knowledge. Like Horace Mann, we believe the system is capable of replacing the family as the main engine of education and character development. We see ourselves as a a support to the school when we should really be thinking of the school as a support to the family. John Taylor Gatto, an award-winning public school teacher and author, made this powerful observation. He said, no large-scale reform is ever going to work to repair our damaged children and our damaged society until we force open the idea of school to include family as the main engine of education. If we use schooling to break children away from parents, and make no mistake, that has been the central function of schools since Horace Mann announced it as the purpose of Massachusetts schools in 1850, we're going to continue to have the horror show we have right now. This is not a call to eradicate public education or a guilt trip to homeschool. All parents, whether they accept the responsibility or not, are their child's primary teachers, no matter where they go to school. Once we change our mindset from my role is to support the school to the school's role is to support my family, we will begin to see remarkable changes. Now, I've talked a lot about why the home is important and why you should center your child's education in the home. Now, I'll talk about what and how, because all of these big ideas won't be helpful without some strategies to apply it. Some families may choose to educate completely at home, which is what my family has chosen. But for other families, this option just doesn't work for their family or individual children. So here are four simple ways to make your child's education centered in the home. First, spend quality time together. Take a serious look at how much time you spend with your individual children each day. Do they spend more time with peers and other adults than they do with you? Look at both of your schedules and make time each day to learn together. Read aloud a book, paint or draw, try an experiment, bake, or go on a nature walk. Even just 15 minutes alone with each child is enough to make a difference. Do you spend a lot of time each month volunteering or fundraising for your child's school? If possible, use that time instead to spend quality time with your child. It will do more for their future success than anything that you will do in the school. Second, say no to homework in elementary school. And I know you might be thinking, Ah, I can't do that. I cannot tell my teacher that my child won't do their homework. The reason I'm saying this is that 
My, I took my youngest son to a pediatric physical therapist. She was telling me how important it is that kids have at least five hours a day to play. And she related this wise advice to me. She said when her children were in elementary school, she told their teachers that they wouldn't do homework. She said her child devoted seven hours of their day to schoolwork. But once they were home, that time was sacred, reserved for family time, play, personal development. She said every one of her child's teachers were not only okay with it, but they were thrilled. So talk to your child's teachers. Tell them that after school is for outdoor play, reading aloud, and learning life skills as a family. Third, ensure that your child is receiving a feast of living ideas. Talk to your child's teacher and get a weekly schedule. Does your child get a wide variety of subjects each, each week like history, geography, music, art, science, and nature study? How much time is spent on that subject each day and each week? And how is it being taught? If your child isn't receiving a feast at school, how will you ensure those subjects are offered at home? I have two suggestions of how to do this. First, create a daily family gather routine, either in the morning or the evening. During this time, discuss scriptures, sing a song, read aloud a book, and or study an artist and composer. The second is to institute a home summer school. Spend 30 to 45 minutes a day learning about a topic together as a family. It could be the history and geography of a place you'll visit that summer or about your native plants and animals. You can find a lot of ideas and materials for both of these on my website. Fourth, ditch the bus. A very wise mother told me that after raising six kids, there was only one thing she regretted as a mother, making her children ride the bus. She said that some of her best conversations with her kids were during the few car rides home from school. That 45 to 60 minute bus ride could have been traded in for quality time with her kids, listening to audiobooks, conference talks, or time for her kids to just play and be kids. You can find this episode's show notes as well as more information about this topic on my website, www.simplewonders.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and or rating the podcast, or even better, share it with friends or family. If you'd like to further support our work here, you can donate by clicking on the link in our profile. Thank you so much for being here. I can't wait to discuss our next topic. Until then, let's go out and work some wonders.